Good morning. Please turn in your Bible this morning to Genesis 14. Genesis chapter 14. Now remember how I said last week that when Abram told Sarai to say she was his sister, he was not pawning off his wife to Pharaoh. Instead, by claiming that Sarai was his sister, no one could legally kill him for her. They had to negotiate with him for a dowry price. And Abram could always reject the offer, or at least give Abram time to plan their escape. Abram was actually protecting Sarai, not pawning her off to save his neck. The problem was that it wasn't just any Egyptian who wanted Sarai. It was the Pharaoh himself who could pay any dowry price, or kill Abram anyway. Interestingly enough, just a few days after I preached that sermon, I received my copy of the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, which is a scholarly biblical journal, and it had an article on that passage. The author made the exact same point that I made in my sermon. I love it when the scholars agree with me. Last week, we talked about how God restated his promise to give Abram all the land of the Canaanites, even though Lot selfishly chose the best land in that area for himself. This week, we'll see how Lot was cursed, so to speak, by being kidnapped. But Abram was blessed with victory. Before we do, let's pray. Lord, our passage this morning is confusing to us. It's hard to keep all the names straight, and we're not sure of all the locations of these nations. But Lord, even if we get lost in the details, help us see the big picture clearly and how it relates to us today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 1 to 12 give a couple of lists of kings and their countries, uh, kings who are warring against each other. Since it's kind of confusing, I'm just going to give you a summary of what's going on in verses 1 to 12, and you can read it later on your own. What we have is two groups of kings here, kind of like the Allies and Axis powers in World War II, except in this case, neither side is good. On the one hand, you have the five city-states of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, and Bela, or Zoar, which all joined forces in the Valley of Sidim, also known as the Dead Sea Valley. I've read that archaeologists have discovered the remains of five ancient cities on the southeast side of the Dead Sea, but it's not certain whether they're the same cities or not. Anyway, so I don't have to keep saying the names of these five cities over and over again. I'm just going to call them the Dead Sea Alliance. Their enemies were nations of Shinar, Elisar, Elam, and Goyim. These nations seemed to occupy land mostly to the north and east of the Dead Sea, in nations we now call Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. Again, for convenience sake, I'm just going to call these nations the Eastern Alliance. So for 12 years, the Dead Sea Alliance had been conquered and ruled by the Eastern Alliance, headed by Kadarla Omer, king of Elam. In the 13th year, however, enough was enough, and the Dead Sea Alliance, including Sodom and Gomorrah, rebelled against Kadarla Omer and his Eastern Alliance. In the 14th year, the empire strikes back. In other words, Kadarla Omer and his Eastern armies headed toward the Dead Sea and apparently conquer everything in their way. 
the Dead Sea Alliance, including men from Sodom and Gomorrah, went out to meet the Eastern Alliance in battle. In this battle, the Dead Sea Alliance was defeated again and fled to the hills. In their haste to escape, some fell into the tar pits of that region. The Eastern Alliance then looted Sodom and Gomorrah and carried off some of its inhabitants, including Abram's nephew, Lot. Totally victorious, they then headed for home. Now, we might think that was the end of the story, but someone managed to escape and report all this to Abram. Let's read about it, starting in verse 13. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. So even though Abram was living in the land God promised to give him someday, it was potentially hostile territory. So Abram apparently made his own alliance with other wealthy herders, Mamre and his brothers Eshcol and Aner. Abram also had apparently trained some of his servants to be fighting men. So in verse 14, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. The Eastern Alliance armies were apparently on their way home, traveling by way of the Fertile Crescent, when Abram caught up with them in Dan on the very north end of Israel. Verses 15 and 16 say, During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and other people. Now, back in verse 12, it sounded like the Eastern Alliance had only taken Lot, but now we learn that they had also taken other captives, including women. Abram's 318 trained men were apparently pretty, trained pretty well because they defeated the armies of the entire Eastern Alliance, something the five city-states of the Dead Sea Alliance were unable to do. Or it could be that God was with them. What do you think? The story kind of reminds me of Gideon in the book of Judges who takes only 300 men to defeat the entire Midianite army. Or about the small band of Jewish guerrillas known as the Maccabees, who defeated huge Syrian armies about 160 years before Christ. Or like the Six-Day War, when tiny Israel defeated the armies of Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and Lebanon in only six days. After defeating the Eastern Alliance, two kings came out to welcome Abram back. According to verses 17 to 20, after Abram returned from defeating Kedalaramur and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High and blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, so one of the kings that came out to meet Abram was Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which means peace. That city would later be known as Jerusalem, which would become King David's capital city. 
Melchizedek brought gifts of bread and wine to Abram, and the text says he was not only a king, he was the priest of the Most High God, the creator of heaven and earth. This Melchizedek is puzzling. How is it that out of the blue we find a priest of the Most High God, creator of heaven and earth, right in the middle of Canaanite territory? And the fact is that we don't know. He just kind of comes out of nowhere, and Genesis never mentions him again. Apparently, God had been working in the lives of more people than is recorded in Scripture. Some Bible teachers think Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Jesus, but they're just reading the New Testament back into the Old Testament. Anyway, Melchizedek brought gifts of bread and wine and blessed Abram, saying, Praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. In other words, Abram did not win the victory because his men were so well-trained or because Abram was such a great strategist or general, but because God had delivered his enemies into his hands. The other king that came out to meet Abram after his victory was the king of Sodom. Verse 21 says, The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Now, my first impression was, well, that was nice of him. He's going to let Abram keep the goods that their enemies had looted. But on further reflection, the king of Sodom had been beaten. He abandoned his people and fled to the hills. He has no right to anything, yet he demands that Abram give his people back. He's lucky Abram didn't say, forget it, Jack, your people are now my people. And what are you going to do about it? Remember, I defeated the ones who defeated you. But that's not what Abram does. He not only returns the people, he refuses to take anything from the king of Sodom, except for his expenses, that is, what his men had already eaten, and what was rightfully due to his allies who went with him. Verse 24, Abram says, I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say I made Abram rich. So what do we learn from this passage? Well, first, I think one of the main points of this passage is given in verses 18 to 20 by Melchizedek when he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Back in chapter 12, God had promised Abram that he would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him, and that is exactly what God is doing. What I called the Eastern Alliance had, in a sense, cursed Abram by kidnapping his nephew Lot. And God blessed Abram with victory and the return of his nephew. As I said last week, I think God's promise to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you still applies today. Those who curse Abram's descendants, the children of Israel, are, I think, on dangerous ground. That doesn't mean Israel right or wrong but it is an indictment against anti-Semitism, and it does have implications for our foreign policy and should be a factor in how we vote. A second big idea is also in verse 20, when Melchizedek says that Abram delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram only had 318 trained servants going up against an eastern alliance of four nations who had beaten the five city-states of the Dead Sea Alliance. Now, true, Abram also had an alliance of his own, the men working for Mamre and Aaron Eshkel. But these were most likely herdsmen going up against professional armies. Their victory was nothing less than amazing, if not miraculous. 
It was important, therefore, for Abram to learn that this victory did not come by Abram's military genius or superior training of his servants. Abram's victory came only by the grace and blessing of God, who delivered the enemy into Abram's hand. Abram was learning more and more about trusting God, since the victory did not come by Abram's might or power, but only by God's grace. This is another lesson we Americans would do well to relearn. In 1776, our victory over the British did not come by our superior military training or power, but only by the grace of God. Even today, our strength does not come from our advanced technology, military superiority, or our nuclear arsenal. We've become the most powerful nation on earth only by the grace of God, and that could change overnight. The solution is not in politics, but in national repentance and revival. Nevertheless, this should also affect how we vote. We should vote for candidates who are not antagonistic toward biblical values and religious liberty. The farther this country goes away from God, the more shaky our future becomes. Third, Abram paid a tithe or 10% of the spoil to Melchizedek, the king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. Now, you don't give a tenth of the spoil to someone below you in the chain of command. You don't even give a tenth of the spoil to an equal. You give the tenth of the spoil to your superior. Abram was recognizing Melchizedek as his superior. Melchizedek is also mentioned in Psalm 110, in which God addresses King David's Lord. This is puzzling because King David is the king. He doesn't have a Lord other than God. So in Psalm 110, who is this one that God is calling King David's Lord? The psalm says that King David's Lord is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, David's Lord will be someone who is superior not only to Abram and his descendants, but also superior to King David himself. So who is King David's Lord or Master? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus says that Psalm 110 was referring to him. He is King David's Lord, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this in chapter 7 and makes the point that just as Melchizedek was superior to Abram and his descendants, so also Jesus is superior to Abram and his descendants, including the Levitical priests. So those, I think, are the big lessons of this chapter. But there are some tangents as well. For example, contrary to those who say that war is always wrong, notice that in this case, war was actually the loving thing to do. The easy and comfortable thing for Abram to do would be to just sit back and allow Lot and the others to be given over to the injustice of slavery. But what Abram does is to get some allies and go to war. And Abram is blessed for it by God. Abram's love compelled Lot, or love for Lot compelled him to make war. Contrary to the pacifists, there are times when war is necessary and justified. Another observation is that Abram refused to accept money from the king of Sodom. Why was that? After all, Abram didn't seem to mind accepting money from the king of Egypt. I think it had to do with the fact that Sodom was already known for its exceptional wickedness, 
and Abram did not want to be associated with that wickedness. Does this have any application for us today? Well, many churches and Christian charities would say no and would accept money from any source. There are a very few churches that go the opposite direction. Third uh, John 3 commends Christian missionaries who go out accepting no help from pagans. And I once heard a pastor from the pulpit who said, if there are any visitors here today who do not know the Lord, please let the offering pay, pay, pass. We do not want your money. Now, my personal position on this as a pastor is that I would oppose accepting money from any organizations whose mission involved actively promoting sinful behavior. For example, Planned Parenthood would never give us money, but even if they offered us a million dollars, I would strongly oppose taking it. We should not take money from those who oppose biblical values. In fact, we didn't even apply for a government shutdown money, even though we were probably eligible. A related observation has to do with the fact that Abram gave a tithe or 10% of the spoils to Melchizedek. This is the first time in the Bible that the tithe or 10% is mentioned. This could be the, the basis for the tithes later commanded by Moses to be given to the Levitical priests in the tabernacle or temple. The idea is that a tenth of what you get should be given back to God, in this case through Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. But in later years, the 10% was to be given to the Levitical priests of the tabernacle or temple. The question is, should we still tithe today? Probably most pastors would say, yes, absolutely. Not only should you tithe, you should give at least 10% of your income to your local church. Now, one problem with this view is that after Melchizedek, all tithes were to go to the temple. And local churches are simply not the same as the temple. Another problem is that tithes were like a tax to support the Levitical priesthood. And pastors are not Levitical priests. A third problem is that nowhere in the New Testament or the New Covenant is the command to tithe repeated, even though there are several contexts where it would have been appropriate. For example, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, when Paul was appealing to money or appealing for money for the famine victims in Jerusalem, it would have been very convenient for him simply to demand that churches give out of the tithe money. But Paul never brings up tithing. So I personally don't think tithing is a requirement for the church today. But I do think you should set aside a predetermined percentage of your income to give back to God on a regular basis. Now, this doesn't all have to go to your local church. There are other good Christian charities, missions, and missionaries. But if you want your local church to continue to function and engage in ministry, you should support it financially. And the New Testament standard is to be generous. For example, Mark 12, uh, Jesus pointed to his, disciple, point his, his disciples' attention to a lady who put a couple of small coins into an offering container of the temple treasury. Jesus said that the others were giving out of their abundance, but she had given out of all she had. Jesus' point was that it's not about how much you give, it's about how generous you are. And that degree of generosity may be an outward indication of your love for God. Now, you all know that I never preach on giving unless it specifically comes up in the text. The only reason I'm mentioning it this morning is because the text talks about Abram giving 10% to Melchizedek. So this is not an appeal for money this morning. 
In fact, I want to take this opportunity to thank you. I have no idea how much anyone gives, but I do know that even during the COVID shutdowns, your giving remained strong and our church was never in financial distress. You are a generous people, and I thank you. I assume that your generosity is an expression of your love for God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the amazing privilege of being pastor to such a wonderful and generous group of people. I pray that you would bless them for their generosity and faithfulness to you. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.